Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today. I, uh, I am rarely not amazed at how the prayers that get spoken beforehand uh, just uh, connects with the whole service. And Lisa this morning said, uh, in one point, if you notice that she said, but the, the thing is that he is. He is. And that is one of my main points today. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to uh, see how you feel after we cross that in a few minutes. Um, well, welcome. You guys seem serious all of a sudden. <laughs> I, uh, I'm just going to start off by telling you just a quick story from, from my life when I was uh, just a few years ago, uh, in my first uh, road race, uh, bike race. And uh, strangely enough, I won the race. Really a weird deal. Hardly ever happened since. But I had uh, come around the corner with this group of guys and a huge pack of folks. And I realized that they were all looking at each other to see what was going to happen. So I was kind of in the middle, and I thought, well, I'm just going to shoot out of here. We have like uh, maybe 250 meters left to go, so I'm just going to shoot out and make that hard right turn and shoot the finish line. And I did. And I was like, what happened? You know, I, this is not my typical thing to win. As I've told you stories before about my incredible losses. Like, and uh, so uh, I, I popped out, came across the line. They were way behind me. They just were surprised. I caught them off guard. The next week, same race, same group of people. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to do this again. So same corner. They're looking at each other. And I'm like, you know, I think I might try this again. So I shoot out, feel this amazing tailwind behind me. I have to make that right hand, 90 degree right turn and, and head the last 100 meters to the, to the finish. I'm going to tell you what happened in just a minute or two. Uh, there is something about being in a race that I love, and I think many of you do too, that the thing you do, you train and you focus and you, you prepare and you picture yourself in the race. You have that feeling of nervousness on the line when you're about to start. You know that those feelings, the intensity, that level that you get when you're in the race that you never really feel beforehand. Could have to do with other aspects of just work or life or school where you really, really try, you really focus. And then there's this moment of competition that is uh, the sweet. Well, in the passage that we're going to look at today, from Hebrews chapter 12, what we see is the culmination of all the things we've been talking about in this, in this series. And that is that Jesus is the one to whom we look, who is himself in a race, was in a race, and we are following him as if in a race, with that same kind of intensity. And he says, the author says, that Jesus has his mind set, his heart set on a goal. And what he calls that goal, he says, it's the joy that Jesus is striving towards. And that joy that Jesus is striving towards is simply this. Our redemption. What made it possible for him to endure all that he endured all along the way in his ministry, in his coming to this earth and taking on human flesh, 
in suffering like he did to bring us into relationship with God. All of that was for that end goal, to bring us into relationship with God. Make that a potential reality for us. That was what he was after. That was his joy. And it kept him going. And it was like a race that he was in. He was training, he was working, he was focused. And the author of Hebrews says, I want you, followers of Jesus, to jump into that race to see the walk of, to see it less like a stroll and more like the intensity that Jesus went through. He's the ultimate example. And so here are the questions I want to ask you and for us to think about as we go through the passage that we're looking at this morning. One is, how was it that he won that race? What did he do as he went through that race? And then secondly, how is it that we go through the race ourselves? We're going to take it actually in the order that the author of Hebrews gives us. And he starts out with what the race looks like for us. And then he talks about Jesus and how it unfolded for him. He says, look to Jesus who went through it like this. So here are my three points. One is the race of the follower. That's us. The race, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, what does that race look like? And then secondly, the race of the Messiah, Jesus' race. What was it like for him? And then finally, the victory that he won for all. What is that like? What, what, what did that feel like? What does it mean to us then? What does it mean to him? So let's talk about the race of the follower. And so I want to read to you Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And like I said, this is the end of the series that we've been in for about three months now. And uh, this passage has just come back to me time and time again. It's so powerful for understanding our faith and what it means to walk with Him. Here's, here's the beginning of it. We're going to unfold it just a bit. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he describes this race that we're in and what it looks like to be in it ourselves. So it's much more than a sprint. It's a lifelong process that we're going through once we cross that line of faith. And we step into that world of like Rosie was talking about, abiding in Jesus, following him. And I want to point out a couple of things that he says that are really important to help us understand what the race looks like. So one is this. We have teammates in the race. So if you see at the beginning, if you put that passage back up there again, Lorraine. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he sets it up and says, hey, there is a group that has come before you that you are a part of. I don't know uh, how many of you are Dallas Cowboy fans. Now, now I do. I'm aware. But uh, I used to be. Um, and I remember uh, I just went to a few Cowboy games in my life at Texas Stadium. And back when they were really America's team. And in the stadium, in the 70s, in, in early 80s, which is when I went to those games, there were, there was this, they still have it now, but they just started this thing called the, the uh, Ring of Honor. And some of you may be familiar with that, but around the middle of the stadium, 
there was this blue uh, uh, sort of banner area, and they started putting names up on that that blue ring in white. And some of you have seen it before and you know that. Uh, Bob Lilly, Tom Landry's on there now back then, Don Meredith, Mel Rentro. You guys are super old like me will remember those names in early pro football. And, you know, one of the reasons they have those, those names up there is so when those dudes that play for the Cowboys now step out on the field, they go, oh man, I'm walking in the shoes you know, I was thinking about, like, if you're a pro basketball player, if you went into the locker room, you know, where, like, I love the 76ers, where, like, Julius Irving, I'm sure they still have a locker for Julius in, in the 76ers, right? And you walk by them and go, I'm a part of this. That's exactly what this author is trying to get us to remember. We're a part of something much bigger. And there is this ring of honor, this hall of fame that has gone before us, but we're a part of that. We're walking in their shoes. And Jesus says, you're just as important. Our author is saying, our walk is just as important. We may not impact as many people, but we are impacting the people around us, and it matters. One thing about Crested Butte, though, if you live here, is that you know that we see each other all the time. At work, at the coffee shop, on the mountain, just walking down the street, driving, you know. We see each other all the time. People we are barely acquainted with, but in particular, I want to point out people that are believers, people who are following Jesus. We are all a part of that. We are a team together. It's not just, hey, remember that team from the past, from the Hebrew Scripture, but remember that we are together in this. When I go down to Gunnison and I see my friend, I just saw you at the, at the gas station the other day. Right, I'm thinking, and I saw three people that day at the gas station of OB Joyful Church okay, at City Market. Try it sometime. Just sit there for a little bit. We are all about the same. If we are aligned in our mission and what we are doing in our community, imagine the impact that we could have to share the love of Christ in this place. And like Rosie pray, or spoke, I don't know if she prayed or not, but we are broken people walking amongst our community. But the value we have is that we are redeemed in Jesus. And so, together, we are a team. So, number one, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the ring of honor, plus our friends that are walking through town with us together, that matters. We're a part of that team. And he says, after that he says, so let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight. I love that, that image. If you're going to compete, you want to lay aside everything that is weighing you down. Have you ever tried to run with a backpack on? You know, some of you I know have. Or you're just in a hurry up the hill, and it's like, oh my gosh. I brought uh, a couple of little examples here. Um, these are basically gallons of water. Uh, this is eight pounds of water, and this is eight pounds of water. This represents basically my winter weight gain. Okay? So whenever I think, you know, okay, I went from, you know, 190 to 198. You know, I went from 190 to just a little over 200. This is, so, I, okay, this is just the way, this is how I think. All right, 
right? It's messed up. But I think, well, I probably should put aside these things if I want to be at least competitive at all, right? I want to put aside... No, I'm not going to pour this out, by the way. Um, Obviously, I want to set aside anything that I'm carrying that hinders me, right? And the sports analogy is just running through the scripture here and there, but in particular in this passage. But what is it that is the heavy stuff for you that is preventing you from running well? Is it your pursuit of things? Is it your pursuit of... Is it your... uh, I'll just say, is it laziness within the culture? Is it a refusal to see our, your faith, our faith, as more than something that just we show up for on Sunday morning? Worries that weigh you down and prevent you, like, I'm not good enough, I couldn't help, I couldn't be a part. Lay aside the heavy stuff, set it down. What is your heavy stuff? And then he says, set aside the sin which clings so closely. I have another quick illustration for this. I grew up uh, a big part of my life in East Texas in the tiny woods. And there are these little vines that grow in the woods that are like uh, one strand and they have stickers all over them. They're like a rose stem, but like 12 feet long. And so if you're running, hiking, playing, uh, I was leading the camp in, in East Texas, so we played games in the woods. Well, invariably, you're going to be running and get caught on what we call wait-a-minute vines. Because you're running and they just, they're, I don't know what they're designed, why they do this, but this is what they do. They just grab a hold of you and they can just drop you. They just stick into your jeans, throw you on the ground. And if you're wearing shorts, we'll look out. You'll get these huge cuts. Some of you know what I'm talking about. These cuts, and they they sting for a week. They pull you down, stop you from going forward, and it's extremely painful. And when I thought about that sin which clings so closely, it just drew me to that thought. You know, we're running through life. It's dark. Things are tough. We're trying to avoid the trees, and there's a, a thing that we can hardly see. But somehow, we are attracted to those and they are attracted to us. And they pull us down. Sin, rebellion against God, choosing our own way, pulls us down. And it drags us to the ground, takes us out of the game, rips us, and leaves scars. We need to set aside the sin which clings so closely or in another version of the scripture, it says that it entangles us. It gets in there and keeps us from running. Right? We want to avoid those things. I think one of the, the most powerful uh, topics for meditation for us in this time, when we think about the sin that Jesus died on the cross to pay for, is to consider our own sin consider how we have fallen short, never forgetting that he came to, to pick us up and bring us forward. So, we want to avoid the sin which clings so closely. We know what those things are in our lives. He says, run with endurance. It's not a sprint. Run with endurance. Keep after it. Don't give up. And then he says, 
look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is that, the, the last piece that I want to share with you about what it is that is our side of the race. And this is the most important part. No matter what, look to Jesus. Everything about this church, everything about what we do should point us to Jesus. Always. Run with endurance, the race set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Set your eyes on him. And if there's nothing else that you hear that I've said, set your eyes So, that's what our race looks like in a nutshell. But his race, what was it like for him? What was the race of the Messiah? We add, I'm going to add just a little bit to that. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy Don't y'all feel like that when something's happening? You're like, why didn't that come <sighs> Thank you for Founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So was Jesus' reason to run to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God? It almost sounds like it in this passage. But I said to you earlier, that, that's not the purpose. That was not his joy. That was not what was set before him. That was one of the results of what was set before him. His joy was to make possible our redemption. Let me read this to you from Luke 19. This is a powerful verse. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Remember all those stories in Luke 15? The woman searching for a coin, the shepherd searching for the lost sheep. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's the joy of Jesus. That's why he came. That was the joy set before him. That's why he endured everything for us. It sounds too anthropocentric to me. I feel guilty even saying that. I feel like, how can that be that his goal, the goal of the God of the universe, was for us? But that's how in- invaluable we are to him. And I want to look at, just for a moment, at what he endured on the way to the cross. And we talked about this and experienced it some on Friday night, and Jim talked about it last week. But I want to imagine it with you from the point of view of the loneliness of Jesus in his last couple of days. You know, when he's riding into Jerusalem, and everyone's just so thrilled to see him, you know what he's thinking on the inside. Right? Can you imagine the juxtaposition of that? How he felt where all these people are so grateful that he's come and he's going to heal and he's going to bring all this goodness and he's going to lead and possibly help them overtake the Romans. And he's thinking, this is not going to go the way you guys think. 
and it's not going to feel good to me. Right? He's getting closer and closer by the moment. And imagine that Last Supper. You know, have you ever served somebody and they didn't thank you at all? Like you didn't, you know? Those of you who, who are real servants, you've experienced a lot. Those of us who aren't real servants, when we do and nothing happens, people pat us on the back, we really feel it. And Jesus has that exact lonely experience of serving those guys as the Son of God, washing, lowering himself as low as their culture would allow him to lower himself. Lonely. And then in the garden, remember the loneliness of the garden? He's praying, he's so distraught, he's, he's weeping, the Son of God is weeping, and his friends, who he trusts the most, who are in the garden with him, the special ones he brought with him, are sleeping. Think about the loneliness of that journey to the cross. And then, of course, he gets taken and he, he has Peter's rejection of him publicly and others as well as they scamper off into the darkness. The beatings, if you just go and look at the lat, at the end of the Gospels and just read the process and each one of them tells a different, but wow, the loneliness, the mocking, it had to be... Uh, It had to be unbearable as a human. And we can understand that. We can sort of get a glimpse of that because we can we know what loneliness is, we know what suffering and pain is, and he's felt it as much as a human can. But what we don't experience is what he knew was really coming, and that was that rejection of God. The loneliness he would feel on the cross when he gave up his spirit. All of these things he did with the joy of redeeming us in his mind. There are going to be times when following him feels really lonely. When being in the race of following Jesus feels like the most lonely thing ever. Like you may feel it right now. You may think, well, if I continue to follow Jesus, I'm going to lose opportunity. I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to lose resources. Loneliness. And I love earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, but we do not have a high priest that by that he means Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing. If you felt lonely, if you felt like you were the only one, that it may be true. But he went before you and he went deeper and harder and farther than you can ever imagine. Physically, as a human, and as a son of God. So his race was one that was focused on our joy. His joy was our joy, the potential of being redeemed and renewed in a renewed relationship by faith with the God of the universe. Now let's talk about his victory and how that plays out for all of us. All right. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. This is the second part of it. It says, And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this statement right here is an amazing understatement. For two big reasons. One is this. It just simply says, He is seated. Or, yeah, it just says, And is seated. 
Well, there's a lot more there than just that. Because that means that he is alive. And that's what I was talking about when I was speaking of, of what uh, Lisa prayed earlier. He is, is the most important thing possible. He is. What an understatement. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, which Tara read to us, if Christ has not been raised, then Paul's preaching, the word of the scripture, is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's critical that we understand that his resurrection, the fact that he is, that he is alive, is true. Imagine what those first people felt like when they found him alive. Just put yourselves in their shoes just for a second. So imagine Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a woman who had a lot of baggage with her, but Jesus had healed her. Jesus had, had done amazing things in her life. And so she was on her way to the tomb to do the things that they did for someone uh, who was being uh, buried, right? So she's going there. And imagine her thoughts on the way. Just, she's walking through this rural, I mean, she's in the town, but she's walking through a place with trees and there's, there's a, um, the, the, coming into that area where this, this sepulcher is that Jesus is, is in tune with them. And she's thinking, man, I love he did so much for me. He's such a good person. But that's where it had to stop. He's so good. And I mean, just, I love him so much, it's okay if he was misguided. She had to be thinking that. It's okay if, if he didn't know that the Romans were too powerful for him. Right? That the Hebrew... Authorities were too powerful for him. He thought he could do it, but he couldn't. And it's okay, though. Still love him. He's still going to go take care of his body. And she shows up, and he's not there. And then she sees him. Can you imagine what that felt like? Or uh, Peter and John. I love their little scene. You know, once they find out that, that Jesus isn't in the tomb, they're like, we got to go. And I, I love picturing these two guys because uh, John describes this. He says, so we got up and we went to the tomb. And the idea is that they, they're hurrying to the tomb. And you can imagine this if, if you've ever been in this situation. They start out walking and start walking faster and faster. Pretty soon they're in this run. Now, I don't know, racing against Peter, that had to be pretty intense. You know, that guy, was he probably would just grab you, you know. But John says, I got there first. I don't know. He felt like he needed to say <laughs> this, this one little note just to get just to, to get Peter. But you know what they were thinking? It just can't be true. You know the reason they were sitting around together is that there were just a few of them left because it, several, several of them had said, "You know what? That's it. I'm leaving." They'd already gone. They'd already said, "He's dead." I saw it. I saw him put him in the tomb. I saw him drop his head. It's over. Right? But then there's this, this glimmer of hope, and they see the Messiah a lot. If they didn't see Jesus alive, they would have been just like the rest of them and said that he was a good man. He loved us well. He had good intentions, but he's dead. But instead, they changed the world, and we're here today. 
couple more thoughts. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter, Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have already died. The disciples would have gone home, back to fishing, and been done if they hadn't seen the living Messiah. To me, this is the most convincing proof of the resurrection. There is one more understatement within this. He says that uh, he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Well, he said he was seated not because they're all sitting around having a conversation, you know, whispering to each other. What he was saying is that Jesus has the preeminent position with God. Right? He wanted to communicate to the people who are reading this at the time, and we have a less of an understanding of this, that Jesus is exalted to the highest position because of what he did. He's not seated, but he is honored because of what he did for us, because that was God's goal to redeem us. And there's another aspect to that. Jesus is not just seated. He's not just done. He's working today. He's alive today. And he's working in our lives. He, somehow, and this is mind-blowing, he is involved in your life. He, is, he says, our author says that Jesus is seated. It does not mean that he is resting and waiting and seeing what's next and chatting with the people he's sitting Those are the understatements. He is, and he is not just seated. His perseverance is for our joy. His joy was ours, that we could be with him. Let me wrap up here. I told you I'd, I'd tell you what happened in that, that race. Feeling um, good again? Well, I'm front. Watched it. Those guys are gone. Come around the corner, and I—it's uh, uh, a pretty wide curved road, and I was going faster than I'd ever gone around that corner before. And started to head up towards the finish line, but I took my eyes off what was ahead of me, and I looked at the curve that was in front of me that I was going 30 miles an hour towards, which I did hit. And went over the, the grass, and of course didn't land in the grass, but landed on the sidewalk. He slid up the sidewalk. And then, of course, the other guys just rode by me and got away. So I'm laying there, bleeding inside the road. Dead last. Humiliated. All these guys, my friends, are always here. Humiliated. As I walk my bike across the line. There is no race that we are a part of. No thing that we can focus on in this life that gives us joy, no accomplishment that we can get to or anything that will ever come close to what it means to be in the race of following Jesus. Nothing will ever be like that. And no matter how hard we try, no, no matter where we come from, no matter what gifts we have, we will always fall short. We will never get there. But 
the whole point of the story is that he crossed the line for us. He comes back to get us bleeding and broken. And by his own suffering, carries us across that line. There is nothing that is more important than understanding that and being engaged in life in that race that is following Jesus. And we're only able to do it because of the joy set before him. And thus he endured the cross. Let me ask those of you who are going to lead us as we close to come on up and I'll pray. God, we just cannot um, we, we're, we live in such a culture of success and praising success and we just understand that you built us to understand but help us to see what real success is what real, the real race is what real joy in life is and that is knowing you through your son God, I pray for anyone here who has not actually crossed that belief of just reaching up to you and having you pick them up and carry them into a relationship with Father. We're, we're honored to be the recipients of your goodness and grace and we just go to your feet. In Jesus' name.